everyone, welcome to What Really Works, a mental health podcast for young adults and youth. In these podcasts, you can expect to hear us chat about mental health and provide well-being tips and tricks with the odd joke thrown in. What Really Works is brought to you by Discovery College, an initiative run by the Canadian Mental Health Association, Kelowna, where lived and living experience and learned experience informs everything we do. Now let's get started with today's episode. Hello, What Really Works listeners. Becky, how are you today? I feel blah. <laughs> I love how even when you feel blah, you're singing to the What Really Works listeners. That's because they count on me. They count on me for the singing. How are you feeling? I'm okay. I'm a feeling... No, use a noise. Um. Oh, how do I... Uh, <laughs> um, I feel like that little painful uh, was exactly how I feel. A little so bit. We got uh, and uh, and we also have a guest with us today, a wonderful, wonderful guest who we have tried to have on this podcast an amazing amount of times. Um, and we are lucky enough that through audio issues, through everything, scheduling and and all of that uh, hectic things, our lovely guest has decided and has wanted to come back and record another episode with us. Today we have Della with us. Hi, Della. Hey, everybody. How's it going, Della? How, do you, how are you feeling today? Do you want me to use a noise? You don't have to. That's okay. Oh, thank you. That, that's <laughs> a lot of pressure. Uh, I'm okay. Um, yeah. The sun is shining where I am and the internet connection is good. So I'm feeling I'm feeling good. That's great to hear. Do you mind introducing yourself a little bit, Della, for the What Really Works listeners? Tell them all of the wonderful, wonderful things that you do for our community and about yourself. Yeah, sure. Um, I don't know about if, if it's amazing, but I can tell them a little bit about myself. <laughs> uh, my name is Della. I have recently graduated from university with a BA in sociology, and I'm super passionate about mental health advocacy and community organization. Um, when I get the opportunity to do so, I like to talk about mental health and advocate for mental well-being. And then I also like to do community organizing through something called the Pink Backpack Project. So we create care packages for marginalized women in the community. These contain pads, toilet trees and other essential items that can be difficult to acquire when you uh, experience uh, houselessness or low income. And so, yeah, community organizing is super important to me and just championing the actualization of people's potential. Um, so in today's podcast, I'm really excited to talk with Becky and Olivia about mental health. Heck yeah, you are. And we're stoked <laughs> to have you on here, Della. Um, Della and I have actually been friends for quite some time. We went to university together and I've always been so in awe of everything that you do for the community, Della, and especially how much you champion mental wellness and mental health, because as What Really Works listeners should know, that is what this podcast is about. <laughs> um, before we jump into it, Della, I do have one more very important question for you, and that oh. is... What is your favorite fruit and why? Oh, crucial. Yes. <laughs> um, hmm, mercy, what is my favorite fruit? It really depends on the season. Oh, okay. I have been eating a lot of grapefruit lately, not because it's my favorite, but because I'm trying to be healthy. Okay. Um, oh, mango. Let me go with mango. Mm -hmm. the, the texture, the taste, it's very tropical. Um, it's, it's sometimes can be creamy. I don't know. It's a, it's a wonderful fruit. I'm going to go with mango. I want mango so bad right yeah. now. I'm like, I'm craving mango. I'm craving so like much. a mango smoothie now. Ooh. I'm like, give me that mango goodness. <laughs> <laughs> that is a great one, Della. All right. What really works listeners. So today, as we've kind of mentioned before, we're going to be talking about mental wellness, but specifically mental wellness in relation to systemic inequalities within our communities, within our healthcare system, and just in general. One of the things that we discuss and like to say is that we can't have a mentally well connected community if everyone's rights and freedoms and 
just their personhood isn't upheld and isn't um, equal, right, yeah. compared to compared to everyone else. So, yeah, I feel CMHA like worded it really succinctly. Is that the word? Like summed it up really. I well, in my opinion, really nicely when they said we we can't have mental health for all until we have justice and peace for all. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that. Yeah, that's kind of what we're going to be getting into a lot of today and like say there's systemic inequalities and how quite often we like hyper focus on the individual but we need to really be broadening our kind of views and lens especially when it comes to thinking about systems yeah absolutely Della as someone that does work within the community and activism within the community when someone says community mental wellness or like holistic mental wellness for our entire for an entire group what's the first few things that come to mind for you oh that's a good question I think about trauma-informed practices and um, having a toolkit that is grounded in understanding the needs and, and barriers to the community that you're serving so really having an approach in which you want to put people at the focus of whatever it is that you're doing say your community work has to do with advocating um, for a particular group of people or providing a service, no matter what the advocacy is or what that service is, you need to know what the needs of the community are. You need to know how they have access to resources or how they don't have access to resources. And so with that, you also need to know the history behind um, those um, accessibilities or lack thereof. Mm -hmm. That's, That's how I would start. Uh, with that answer. Yeah, absolutely. And the first thing that came to my mind as you're saying that is the quote that goes, I I think I mentioned it in our last podcast that we do, but I just love it, is that I can't reduce the barriers that exist for other people if I'm not aware of what those barriers are, right? And if I'm not aware of the privileges and biases that I have, then I'm definitely not going to be able to help to reduce the barriers that other folks might face because I don't even know that those barriers exist. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly that. You need to be starting from somewhere and that somewhere needs to be education. Absolutely. And it goes beyond working within like an advocacy setting or a work setting or or like community organizing setting as well, where we as individuals also have a responsibility to educate ourselves in regards to being trauma informed and knowing the history behind marginalized groups within Canada, within the United States, within the world, right? And understanding like our position within that on an individual basis, but then also widening and widening it to a community um, focus as well. Mm-hmm. So when we think of reckoning with that systemic inequality within our healthcare system, I don't know about you, Becky, but one of the first thing that comes to mind for me is the availability of mental health services to folks that are not white, right? Because we hear so often, and we talked about this a little bit on our previous podcast with Selena, that therapy and counseling can often be seen as a, a, as a white person's thing, right? Because we have more there's more services that are catered towards a white experience, it would seem. Well, even... You know, I would class myself as a mental health professional. All the teachings and learnings you are taught and trained with generally are through a white perspective lens as well, right? Which then means we're also not providing healthcare givers and care providers and counsellors and therapists with the with even the tools and the knowledge of how if we don't analyse the way that we're practising and the way that we're supporting and asking questions and getting curious, then actually we're creating barriers to mental health for people of color. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's not even those barriers within, I mean, yeah, absolutely. Our barriers within our healthcare system on a larger level, on a systemic level of not having that education, of not having the right systems approach, but also perhaps not even having the community awareness that this is going on. Della, when you think about the availability 
of mental health care for folks that identify as people of color or other marginalized communities. Um, How have you seen that kind of come to fruition in your own life? Mm -hmm. I'd say that there is certainly a lack in terms of training around having an intercultural perspective. And so even with the research that I did with the Pink Backpack Project, I was able to interview um, women in the community about biases that exist when it comes to accessing resources uh, in regard to resources for people who are houseless. So accessing like food banks and shelters. And then with those conversations, we got into the healthcare system. And something that we're seeing among nurses, healthcare professionals, unfortunately, is that there is sometimes a bias because as in society, we have our biases. And sometimes when someone comes into the ER and, you know, they are of a darker complexion or they look in, they seem to be inebriated, there are assumptions that come into place about why they're in the hospital, how they got there, and the type of care that they should receive as a response. Sometimes symptoms aren't believed. Um, Sometimes healthcare professionals don't ask questions that would be sensitive or appropriate. And we see that people aren't receiving the highest quality of care or even respect within the healthcare setting. When it comes to mental health care, um, like uh, Olivia mentioned, it sometimes is seen as a white people thing to go to therapy. I wasn't born in Canada. I was born in West Africa and my family came here later and therapy is not something that, you know, we're talking about back home. It's not something that people do. Of course, the community support back home is much different than here. There is that difference in North America. It is a very individualistic society. It's not based on living with extended family or communing with your extended family and having that community support. So even the framework of how society is set up is different and thereby that has different mental health repercussions. And so you take yourself outside of the West African setting to the North American setting, and you're already going to experience a a displacement culturally and psychologically. And so with that, even though you're in a different setting, you're still not used to it and you're not used to the practices here. And so you're not going to be as willing or as likely to access mental health care, especially when it's not made for you in the first place. And so it's this whole cycle, this whole mishmash of things going on that makes it one difficult to access the resources that are available. And then two, the resources that are available aren't even made for you in the first place. And those who are designing the programs for your well-being or your wellness don't do it in a way that is culturally informed, in a way that is uh, informed in trauma, in cultural differences. It's There's a lot that we could talk about here, but I, I'm, I'm just going and going. So let me stop myself here so that you can ask me the next question. No, that's that's great, Della. And thank you so much for uh, for going on like that because it gives us a lot of things to kind of dive into. One of the first ones that I would like to um, ask you a little bit about is have you noticed any different trends in people of color who are accessing mental health services during recent times as we're seeing a rise in um, in racial violence. Mm-hmm. I can imagine that it would be incredibly overwhelming right now with a rise in, in racial violence against Asian individuals, against Black individuals, and just the overall more prevalence of seeing that within, within our lives, on social media, within the news. Um, it's a lot all the time. And For me, if I was experiencing that as a white person, it would be very easy for me to just go to counseling and go to therapy and kind of talk through what it is that I'm struggling with. Do you think that that it's that maybe the rise in seeing all of this all the time and the rise in in racial violence has made it so that folks that are that are people of color are more likely or less likely to go and receive some support to work through those feelings? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. In my own case, I, I go to therapy and my therapist is excellent. He said straight, he's a white man. And he said straight up that 
you know, he is not informed in what it feels like to be experiencing the re-traumatization of seeing this violence on the news because he isn't a person of color and he hasn't grown up with the same experiences that I am. And so with regard to that particular aspect of what I'm experiencing, um, he would advise me to seek counseling elsewhere for that those particular types of, yeah. of problems. And so when it comes to wanting to, to seek support for that, it's like, yes, you know, I'm sure many people of color want support for the re-traumatization that we're witnessing. But the issue is, where do we find it? Yeah. You know, so good that my counselor era didn't say that, you know, he has all the answers or that, you know, he's the person to talk to about this. He didn't say don't talk about it, mind you. He just said that, you know, to really dive into it, I, I would need to go to find someone else who is better versed. But of course he would still create a safe space to talk about it. Yeah. Simply knowing um, to, to voice that I think is one extremely important because not everyone can create a safe space or not everyone can be the person that you need to talk to at a given time. But then secondly, where, where are those safe spaces? You know, people mm -hmm. of color do want support and people of color need support especially right now for their for their well-being you know with all of the anti-black violence that we're seeing with all of the asian hate that we're seeing of between 2020 and 2021 people of color we need the community supports in order to champion our well-being but where are those supports yeah i am seeing a few um therapists who who are who are people of color like popping up here and there and so that's really important in order to have those um, mental health resources that are tailored to to racialized communities um, but they they weren't prevalent before it's interesting to me because there's as you say a real lack of available resources for people of color especially um, within our counseling and healthcare services and our mental health services. I know that I've been trying to look for peer support groups um, for Asian individuals, for black individuals, and virtually non-existent in Kelowna. I don't know why I'm saying virtually. They are non-existent in, in Kelowna, um, which is which is really hard, right, yeah. to not have those specific and, spe and like specified and tailored safe environments. And I can imagine that it would actually be like activating or re-traumatizing to speak to a white counselor, a white therapist, a white person that is supporting with mental wellness right now that either potentially could not have a deep enough understanding um, of trauma, cu cultural trauma, of generational trauma, of cultural humility, but also just by, I wonder if just even by their their presence, right, of not being able to, to connect in the way that you might want to connect with everything that we're seeing right now, right? I don't know if that makes sense. No, it makes perfect sense. Um, because if you have to sit there in therapy and then educate your your therapist mm -hmm. on what it means to be a person of color, on, you know, what anti-Black racism is, on what it means to be an anti-racist, if you're a member of the LGBTQ plus community and you have to educate them on trans rights or on what it's like to experience discrimination based on your sexuality, that is exhausting. Mm -hmm. You should be able to go into therapy and be understood with what you're coming into that space with. It's about working through the trauma and breaking it down and having the resources in order to get through your day-to-day -day life, not having to explain your life yeah. and educate your therapist before they can then help you. So yes, it's definitely difficult to bring those challenges into a mental health space and not be able to be met with support. Yeah, I compare it to peer support a lot, actually, because or it makes me think of peer support a lot, because one of the benefits of peer support is you go into an environment knowing that the folks there understand your experience. So you go in to a supportive session with, I guess, this calmness over you because you know that all of the folks in the session also have experienced like the same hard things that you've gone through so you go in not not needing to even feel as though you need to explain yourself or that you're going to be judged or that you're going to be misunderstood and I can see that being a very similar experience if an individual was to go into a supportive um, mentally mental 
health session with um, a black individual if they were also black. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you in in those settings, you already have a baseline. You know, if you're of the same racial background, same culture, there. Well, let me not say that you have the same baseline, but there's the potential yeah, to have the same exactly. baseline because even within the same cultural group or racial group, you will still have, you know, cha- like um, you'll still have um, differences mm-hmm. in in the person, in two people's like lifestyles or socioeconomic backgrounds, religious beliefs, etc. Yeah, beliefs, values. But, everyone's different, of course. Exactly. Exactly. But at the very least there is a a greater chance of being at the same baseline yeah and it just allows for like that connection Mm -hmm. right like a big part of even just trying like finding a counselor is finding that connection where like you say like you feel relief because you're like you get this um Mm -hmm. and things like that right and yeah it must just be so relieving of like I can speak to someone who like gets this I don't have to you shouldn't have to educate your therapist right Mm -hmm. you shouldn't have to educate a mental health professional so that they can then try to support you. And even with that, there are non-racialized people who can do the work and who are doing the work. It's not to say that there aren't, um, but what I think is lacking is that being the norm is that, you know, mental health professionals, regardless of what their background is or what what their ethnicity is, we don't see them always being trained in cultural competency. And so that's where we see these discrepancies in the quality of patient care. Absolutely. And I think another thing that isn't talked about enough is regardless of the position that you might have within an organization that does advocacy, that does work with marginalized individuals, um, a mental health organization like Canadian Mental Health Association, you know, we need to have multiple layers of education. It's not just the folks that are working directly with our marginalized communities that need to be educated in things like cultural humility and working with those with um, those diverse populations, but, you know, everyone at every level, right, to really make sure that we are creating systemic change instead of that surface level education that we see so much. Mm-hmm just creates that trauma-informed environment even for staff right yeah it's not just the people who are accessing your services that you want it to be a safe and culturally informed environment right you also want it for any staff member or anybody who interacts with whatever that organization is that is a person from a community that is marginalized you want it to always be a safe like as try as much as possible to make it that trauma-informed environment. Mm -hmm. And that makes me think of our next topic that I would really like to get into, and that's mental health as a form of resistance and activism, which I think is just such an interesting, interesting way of viewing mental health. Um, Della, when Mm -hmm. we first say like mental health can be a form of resistance and activism, what are the first few things that come to mind for you? I honestly think of people who are doing advocacy and activist work taking care of themselves first, Mm. because if you want to serve your community, how can you do so if there's nothing left of you to give? You know, um, there's a phrase like you can't pour from an empty cup if you want to give back to other people, if you want to mobilize other people. You yourself have to be mentally well. You have to be physically well in order to do that work. I don't um, subscribe to this mentality that you have to, you know, work yourself to the bone and in order to, you know, legitimize the quality of your work, you can do good work, you can do meaningful and sustainable work by taking care of yourself first. I think that in of itself is a form of activism because you're saying, no, I don't actually need to suffer in order for my work to have value. My activism is just as valid, is just as valuable. And the work that is produced is just as good, if not better, because I was able to take care of myself first. And even you saying that, like you you said, like sustainable activism, right? Like if you mention working yourself to the bone, like you can't keep on going. Like Mm -hmm. you're eventually going to burn out, right? Like there's only so much energy and resources each person has. Exactly. And when we look at community well-being, 
that mental health can be a form of resistance in of itself and that you're building up stronger communities. You know, if we look at the Black community and things that, that we've been seeing in the news around police violence, there is this urgency to, you know, shake up the system and change things, which is extremely necessary. But then there's also a need for rest. Yeah. There's a need for healing that collective re-traumatization that we're seeing in the Black community because of the violence that we're seeing, because of the fear that can be experienced around simply leaving your house. And so that community well-being is a form of resistance in that it helps people be well and stay well and not feel fear or not feel discouraged in their Blackness. And the, sometimes we see mental health as this thing that is very much um, something for the individual to accomplish for themselves so that they can go out in the world. But we also need to look at the well-being of our families, look at the well-being of our communities, because it's when everybody can work together and everybody can feel well that then individual people can also be connected to something. I think that's another aspect of mental well-being and even something in our culture that we sometimes miss, that we are social creatures and that if we can take care of one another, our communities, our societies will be better for it. Yeah, one of the things that we offer all the time as a supportive technique is connection. And connection is, it's a part of community, right? And if we're really paying attention to to the connections that we're making within our family, within our friendships, within our different community groups, and utilizing those connections in a way that's beneficial for our mental wellness and is feeding us in a sustainable way, feeding our happiness, feeding our, our values, feeding our beliefs and our joys, um, rather than consistently having that cup be empty and not filling it up with that connection for sure. Mm -hmm. Do you find that that's harder right now, given the prevalence of these of like systemic inequality coming, being more centered in many conversations that folks are having right now? Do you find that it's harder as a person of color to to maintain that balance because these conversations are being had more often, which is wonderful and, and great to, to treat, create that systemic long-lasting change. But I can imagine that it also puts a lot of pressure on individuals like yourself that are that do identify as a person of color, but then also do identify as an activist and someone that is within the community, organizing the community and trying to create long lasting change. It can be extremely exhausting work. It can be uh, extremely challenging because when you enter the space of wanting to advocate for change or mobilize people toward change, then you have this responsibility. Uh, rightfully so, I suppose, because it makes sense that with uh, with entering a particular role, you take on a certain mantle. Yeah, it's complicated, right? Because compared to a few years ago, I think the inequalities that exist within our society were just as prevalent, right? But not as talked about and not as centered within within ev within our media within within our news like constantly being bombarded and constantly um for a lot of people being re-traumatized by the images um that that you see and just just the ideas that that I don't really know I guess I'm I I talked with um I spoke with one of my friends not too long ago and he identifies as a person of color as a black man and was saying you know that that it's challenging because now every conversation that they have has some sort of has more of ra more racial undertones to it because mm -hmm. people are hyper aware right now, mm -hmm. which I think is really good for long lasting change. But I can imagine that that takes a toll on on your mental wellness. Right. If you're mm -hmm. if you're constantly thinking about your race, especially as as a person of color. 
and what mm-hmm. what comes along with those interactions if it's more at the surface. I don't know if you understand what I'm saying. <laughs> no, I, I totally do. I I think, yes, on one hand, it's really good that we're having these conversations that, you know, for people who didn't realize that racism or that systemic racism is a thing, it's good that they're realizing this. But then on the other hand, it's extremely exhausting for you know, every other conversation to be about race mm-hmm. is extremely exhausting to educate your non-racialized friends or to get into an argument with your racialized friends and to have to either defend yourself or defend someone else. It, it is extremely exhausting. And I think it's simply because we're at a turning point in our culture that we are going through this period of tension this time that we're in will pass. And I don't know what the other side of it looks like, but it'll change into other conversations taking place. And hopefully when those new conversations take place, it'll be from a, a space of greater understanding. Hopefully by then people will be willing and able to educate themselves and be willing and able to stop, wait, and listen. You know, we have so many people who want to jump into the conversation and give their two cents about, you know, what it means to be Black, what it means to be Asian, what it means to be Indigenous, what it means to be white. But I also want to see people taking the time to read up about what that means. You know, and I'm not talking about it not being good for people to talk about their experiences. I'm talking about people wanting to jump in and like stir things up, if you know what I mean. People mm-hmm. wanting to like cause trouble or like wanting to, you know, discredit what people are experiencing or wanting to call people out in a way that is not thoughtful or that does not come from a place of wanting to problem solve. I think where we are right now, tensions are high and people really want a solution. And we need a solution yesterday, but we're not going to get to the solution moving forward if we're not willing to slow down, educate ourselves, and really reevaluate the systems that we're living in. To continually talk about race, systemic inequalities is difficult work. And those who are engaging in these spaces need to be able to take care of themselves in order to be able to take care of their communities. Communities need to be able to take care of themselves in order to build stronger societies. And we're not going to get there unless we can slow down a little bit and do the work that's necessary to heal, to reevaluate. You know, this one conversation that we're having right now isn't going to change the landscape of healthcare, and, but it is one ripple. And we need those multiple ripples, but we need that to happen simultaneously on the other side of resting and researching and educating ourselves. I don't know if what I'm saying is landing properly. There needs to be a balance, essentially. Yeah, I really appreciate you saying that we need to slow down. And that seems sometimes can feel like an impossible task, especially in our modern world where everything is so fast and we have access to knowledge so quickly and we see things on Instagram just flooded with information all of the time. But one of the reasons and what it makes me think of of why slowing down is so important is I do work within... Um, within my job of peer support of, of training folks on really important things like boundaries, non-judgment. We do do some uh, cultural humility training, um, trauma-informed practice, all of that great stuff. And the reason why training is so important to me is because you it's the very first time that you can really have an influence over how someone is going to continue to carry out their position, continue to carry out their job. So those very first conversations that you're having, those very first things that you're training someone on are so, so important because they're going to be carried through their entire career, right? It really just sets the foundation. And one of the things that I've noticed over over a period of time, and Della, you and I kind of talked about this a little bit before, is our mental health system, our, our healthcare sector is, as we mentioned before, set up a lot of the time to support white individuals. <clears throat> and most of the individuals that 
that I work with are white and identify as, um, you know, people that that have lived with mental health challenges that might have experienced homelessness, have gone through some really, really hard things in life. Right. Um, And I can identify with that. And it's so interesting because through having these conversations and through training, through talking about non-judgment and cultural humility and privilege and all of these things, you can see how someone that is white has been through such hard, hard, hard things in life. And maybe because of this, they don't really see how race plays into things. A black individual has been through some really hard things and so have they. So that's equal, right? So they've both been through hard things. So what do you mean? What are you talking about when inequality between the two folks? But then when you start to get to things like systemic inequality and having those conversations and talking about different types of privilege and different types of experiences and how those experiences, um, like generational experiences, can can mold where someone is at in their life, you really start to see like light bulbs turn on. And it's like, okay, so this wasn't some sort of like an ignorance within you or and it wasn't some sort of judgment within you. It was just a lack of awareness. Right. Mm -hmm. Just a general lack of awareness and lack of conversation, a lack of slowing down. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah. And that's a really necessary but tricky conversation to have, because if we take, for instance, the immigrant experience, Mm. the cultural isolation and cultural shock that comes with being an immigrant is so different from the anomie and cultural sort of I want to say like cultural dissociation that we see within North America mm-hmm. in that people are not always open to, you know, holding space spaces with others. People are not always open to, you know, greeting their neighbor or being or being friendly to someone that they see on the street. Rightfully so. Like, you know, strangers are strangers, you know, <laughs> teacher kids are not the strangers. But it's it's very different the way that different cultures interact with one another. And it's very different the way it feels to be a quote unquote local versus being an immigrant. And I think it's important for community supports to recognize those tensions and sometimes they they don't and so there we can see discrepancies in in services that are being made and discrepancies in the way people are treated when they're trying to access those those resources it's true you know everybody has mental health everybody experiences can experience mental health challenges but there are systemic systemic barriers that can aggravate a person's mental health and well-being in a way that it's not going to aggravate someone else's. And so we need specialized programs and specialized um, treatment plans in order to address those particular systemic challenges. Absolutely. And I think a part of that is also knowing what sort of questions we can ask to organizations, to to service providers to help us better understand if this organization, if this service is trauma informed, if they are making um, making moves to to try to serve a more diverse representation of the population and more diverse experiences. Della, do you have any advice on what sort of questions folks can ask, whether it be a clinician, a therapist, a peer support group, an organization in general that maybe they're working for, um, to try to get a little bit more information if that if they're culturally competent, if they're going to feel um, supported during their time working with that with that organization or whoever it might be. This is what to ask organizations. Yeah, or? like what could you ask to an organization or a therapist to just gauge whether or not they are working towards cultural competency, working towards being trauma informed, or maybe they already are. Yeah, that's that's a good question. I think for for myself, if I I always like to um, get to know my therapist before I actually start seeing them regularly Mm -hmm. and so I've been through a few before I finally found one that kind of fit and uh, you could ask them you could be so bold as to ask them you know um, you know have you gone through intercultural um, community training you know have you done a series of workshops or any coursework around cultural competencies in this organization what 
is your stance on diversity and inclusion? Do you have uh, diversity and inclusion education for your employees in this space? How do you honor the different cultural representations of your employees and of your clientele? These are not easy questions to ask simply because <laughs> one, you have to be so bold as to say it. And then two, you have to be okay with the response that you're going to get. Yeah. Some people are not going to be happy that you're asking that question. That's a good point. Some people are going to be so touched that they're going to be like, we're not racist here. What are you talking about? <laughs> oh. I didn't say that you were racist. The question that we asked was, do you do cultural competency training and because especially because of the climate that we're in not everybody is going to be comfortable with those questions people might feel intimidated like you're trying to say something about their organization but what they don't recognize is that hey me as a black woman I've seen some things. I've been through some things. I just want to know if this is a safe space. And so unfortunately, I think that's that's kind of what's missing on the other side of that is that when you ask those kind of questions to an organization, they might see it as an attack rather than, hey, this person is coming from having experienced something that has made them even question whether they can access this space. Yeah. Let me respond to this question in a way that is thoughtful so that they can make the best decision for themselves moving forward with treatment. Because say, for instance, you know, your organization doesn't have any cultural competency training, doesn't do any workshops on on inclusive language or, or what have you. That is something that you can say thoughtfully. You can say, oh, no, you know, we, we haven't done that, but we're looking into it. Or you can be straight up and say, no, we haven't done that and we're not going to because we don't feel that it's necessary. Give an honest and sincere and respectful answer in return because when someone asks a question about whether that training has been done, they're not trying to fight you or at least if I were to ask, I'm not trying to fight anyone. I simply want to know whether this is a space for me. And and I think we need to be able to normalize asking these questions because as much as when I go to therapy, I want to access a service, I still want that service to be the best for me that it can be. My coin is going into therapy. I need to know if this is a space that, you know, I can I can be well in and find my healing in. So it's just as important for you to feel comfortable in that space as it is for them to provide a quality service. And so, yeah, it's it's important to, to ask these questions. It's not it's not going to be easy. <laughs> not everyone's going to do it. You might get some sideways glances, um, but I think it's another thing that we, we need to be able to normalize. Yeah, I agree. You know, and if you're getting those sideways glances and that's a red flag, <laughs> that's that's your yeah. red flag. That's your that's your answer right there on whether or not those those steps have been taken. And, you know, in addition to everything that you that you said there, Della, we also want to ask those questions and be aware of stances on that because you have the potential of being re-traumatized if someone is not paying attention to cultural humility to a trauma-informed environment to a safe environment right diverse environment or even just being open to acknowledging the level of privilege you hold as a mental health professional and as an individual right yeah exactly Mm -hmm. so we've covered a lot of difficult topics and places where you know there needs to be growth and more learning and understanding so I guess let's kind of talk a little bit about where we can go from here what are those kind of slow next steps we can hopefully do and start to implement in our lives is there anything Della that you would for you are just incredibly important for those next steps of where we can go well with that previous question that Olivia just asked that brought up something very interesting for me in that I have never been in a position where I'd be comfortable enough to ask, you know, what is this organization's take on diversity and equity in the organization? And it it's something that matters to me, but I myself have been afraid to ask that question. I myself don't want the stigma that comes with being, you know, that person who asks. And I think that really needs to change. You know, mental well-being is important 
It's important whether you are an employee within an organization. It's important whether you're a boss running an organization and you have people who depend on your competency. It's important whether you are a client accessing a service, but it's not prioritized. Yeah. And I feel that is a reflection of the labor economy that we're in and that it's all about output. It's all about high efficiency, but it's not necessarily about making sure that people are well and that our communities are well and it would be amazing to see a shift in that to be able to have conversations without hostility you know if I was to go to access a counseling service and they said straight up no we don't do education and training for our employees and we're not going to I want to know that like I don't want to get into a fight and be like you know what? I think you should. Listen, here's my card. Hire me. I'll train you. <laughs> no, 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 that's that's not my place. <laughs> I want to know you know, what is going on in that organization that I'm trying to, to get counseling from so that I can make the most informed decision. I think sometimes if, if an organization has not been the most equitable, um, there has been, you know, a lot of shame around that because of cancel culture. Mm, yeah, it's like, okay, call you can call a spade a spade, all right, but like, what is the end goal? It is are we canceling them so that we never see them again, or are we quote unquote canceling them so that they they change their organizational structure or to make a point? Like, is it just to, to make a point or mm-hmm, exactly? So by calling companies out, by calling employers out. Are we trying to see different employees or sorry, different employers, different organizations, or are we trying to encourage them to change? Uh, I think perhaps we need to be a little bit proactive in in actually creating the change that we want to see and encouraging companies to make that change. I think we need to be open to letting people make mistakes. I think we need to be open to the fact that organizations and employers sometimes will have a long ways to go with regard to meeting the society where it is and wants to be with regard to cultural competency and community wellness. Not all organizations are going to get there. Not all organizations want to do the work to get there. But at the very least, if they can be honest, then we can have more honest and meaningful conversations. Not arguments, but things that are really focused around fixing the root causes that are creating discrepancies and systemic inequalities within our communities. This is a very, like complicated and like high level topic you know to put into a a snippet of a podcast (laughs) I hope you can understand what it is that I'm trying to say absolutely I mean I don't even really know where to go from from there because I'm like preach yeah that's 100% exactly what we need to do and I think if you know if uh, a therapist a counselor an organization a clinician uh, whoever it is isn't being forthright with that information then that also kind of tells you the answers that you need to know yeah I mean people will give a lot away without words right (laughs) yeah like a a good mental health professional a good organization should be able to answer it honestly without being defensive Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. whether that's answering it honestly in a sense of like you know what we actually are pretty good at doing this like this is important to us or answering it honestly and being like hey like I'm not gonna fake it till I make it on this one like actually this is something that I don't have much knowledge in or don't have much awareness in you're protecting people by doing that yeah exactly like being humble is it's a good sign for that like organization or for that mental health professional whoever it is like if they can be honest about where they're at and where their knowledge is at that's huge yeah and you can also ask like specific questions to a therapist or a counselor that you might want to work with beyond like what are you doing as far as training and what's your organization doing that you work for like you could ask your therapist how many uh people of color have you worked with before you know like can you talk a little bit about the privilege that you might hold or are you willing to learn more about my cultural background to support me through this or even just what do you what are you willing to do to make this a safe space for me yeah exactly 
That's a great question. That's a great question for anyone to ask, right? In any situation. How is this space safe for me? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that goes beyond race, religious background, uh, citizenship status, because if you ask, how can this, how can I make this a safe space for you? You know, then that opens up so many conversations, even between two people of the same racial background or religious background, they're going to have differences. They're, they're going to not know certain things about one another because how would they? And they're going to have different life experiences according to their intersections of their identity. So I think what Becky brought up is extremely salient and a question that you could ask in so many spaces. Yeah. And if we're asking those questions on an individual to individual basis to companies, to organizations, to specific sectors within our society, then hopefully as you ask those questions one by one, then eventually you create a safe community where the entire community is asking those questions and the entire community is working towards those goals, right? Um, just one step at a time, slowly, like you were speaking about, Della. Yeah. And it'll, it'll take time, but I think it's well worth it. Thank you, Della, so much for joining us. Like This has been an amazing conversation, and we are so lucky to have you come on and record another podcast with us. <laughs> um, is there anything else that you would like to leave the What Really Works listeners with or leave Becky and I with um, anything that we haven't covered today that you would like to discuss or, or mention? Um, I, I just want to say thank you so much for having me. I hope that this time the recording goes through properly and that this podcast is actually aired and that people are listening to it right now. Um, and that, you know, there are a lot of things that I don't know. I'm a lifelong learner and I'm always curious about people and curious about our society. And so if there's something that I said that doesn't resonate with you, that's good. Re read about it, look into it, you know, be curious enough to ask critical questions and engage with what you're listening to and, and, uh, and not just always take things at face value. It's important to be a critical thinker, to be a deep thinker, to be a lifelong learner. And it was such a pleasure to be on this podcast today. I hope that it added something, uh, whether that's a conversation starter or something that you want to look up later, or whether it gave you any healing, that's also amazing. Um, so thank you so much to Becky and Olivia for this opportunity. Thank you to you. Yeah, like, thanks, Stella. It's been amazing to have you come on the podcast with us and um, to just be able to talk to you about these kind of things. I'm so excited to see the work that you do in the future because I know that I'm going to be following it and it's going to be amazing. So just looking forward to, to everything that you do now yeah. and in the future. <laughs> so much pressure on you. I'm <laughs> oh, I know. Goodness. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Okay. Uh, thank you so much, Della. <laughs> Becky, anything else that you wanted to add or are we saying goodbye to our listeners? Uh, I don't think there's anything for me to add. Okay. Well, goodbye. What really works listeners. I hope you all have a wonderful rest of your day. Thanks for tuning in. And we'll talk to you later. Goodbye. Bye. Staple Studio is a co-working space for those looking for a safe alternative to working from home. I know I feel so stuck at home these days, and going to Staples makes me feel like I actually have a change of pace. They offer not only a safe space to work with desks, offices, private phone booths, and meeting rooms, they are connected to the Staples store where they have everything you need under one roof. Studio is more than just a co-working space. Studio is a community to help you work, learn, and grow. Follow them on Instagram at Staples Studio Canada for more information on locations, pricing, and amenities. Please visit studio.staples.ca and book a virtual tour. again for listening to us we hope you enjoyed this podcast you can find us on all major podcast streaming platforms and if you don't want to miss any future episodes you can follow us or subscribe to what really works to find more from discovery college go to discoverycollegecolona.com and thanks again to staple studio in supplying us to produce this podcast